Welcome back. This is Andy. This is the Poor Pearls Almanac. And if you're listening, well, you know what you did. What I do. Something worse has to do with robots in San Francisco. (laughs) Are we going to get into that now? I'm, I'm freaking out. Yeah. Hopefully by the time this comes out, you have flown to San Francisco, shot them all, and come back and hopefully have become a hero. The last thing I need on my resume is cop killer. So no thank you. I don't know. I don't know. I, the damn robots. They're, the robot overlords are coming and it, it's got me all twisted, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. No, today is much more stupid. But just for the record, Elliot is talking about shooting robotic cops, not real cops, FBI or whoever's listening. I mean, it says police on the front of them. Like, that's a, it's a fucking cop. Okay. I'm, I'm trying to give you plausible deniability, all right? That's all I'm, I'm doing for you. So today we are... Um, we're back on our, our good friends, Fred the Second and company, and it's part three of the American Energy Farming Systems. And I know you guys have been having lots and lots of fun because we've been having a lot of fun. Today, we're going to talk about my favorite character in this entire saga, Reverend Lowell Kramer. Now, if you don't recall, we're about halfway through this saga, and um, we just introduced our, our good friend, Reverend Lowell Kramer. Yeah, okay. So if you haven't caught up, I'm going to give you a brief rundown. This story is about a bunch of stupid people um, doing shitty things and making stupid decisions, and it ends up in a pyramid scheme in the Midwest, and it it screws over a lot of people. So that's just a quick summation of the story. Yeah, and if you want to know more because it's about sun jokes, check out part one and two. They're really great. So while AFS, uh, the American Energy Farming Systems, this ubiquitous company that was selling sunchokes and sunchoke seeds, while they were busy trying to leverage their uh, evangelical identity to justify their absurd ideas, they actually went out and didn't just say, like, we're evangelicals, but they made, like, religious faith, like, fundamentally a part of its sales pitch. Its first sales list was the membership list of a regional radio show called Prayer Power, hosted by uh, a fellow named Pastor Pete. Coincidentally, the first employee of AEFS was John Peterson, Pastor Pete's son. Okay, so it just hit me. Uh, trying to recap the first two parts of the story, and now we're starting here with the nepotism. And this sounds like a story that was written by Tommy Wiseau, the guy that did The Room, that super horrible movie. He tried to write and act in it himself. And I don't know. This whole story just reminds me of that. Like, if we do it all internal, it's going to make it super efficient, which will make it profitable, obviously. We've got our friend, uh, Lowell Kramer, the reverend, and he's, we've got another reverend, Jerry Knapper. I believe we, we talked about him talking about what they were doing on, um, I think it was the radio or something like that. And um, they were hired primarily because they could preach. Uh, now, Richard Spencer, yes, Richard Spencer, like the guy that got punched in the face, the head of the the research team, uh, attended Dwyer's church, the Marshall Evangelical Free Church. So this story has Richard Spencer in it. He hasn't even been memed yet. Pre-meme. Different, different Spencer, unfortunately, or fortunately, I guess. Although, you know, the parallels between MAGA, and we've talked about it, we're going to talk about it more because it's going to keep coming up, and this group is just like... It sounds fake. It absolutely sounds fake. Yeah, it sounds like a made-up story. Like, I, I didn't think it was real until I saw a Washington Post article from 1984 confirming everything that we've been talking about. Uh, yeah. Basically, AFS dressed itself in, like, all of the 
like stereotypical Christian trappings of this time period, the early 1980s. The workday, for example, often began with a prayer service and organ music, carried away with the power prayer. Of Part of this whole thing is that to be Christian at this time was to also serve self-interest. Like think of the Reaganism. This included like the officials praying for the failure of corn crops, so farmers would be led to find their way to the true crop, the Jerusalem artichoke. The chosen plant. Yeah, so let's just starve half the country so that they want to plant these roots that people might want to eat, even though we're not selling food, we're selling ethanol. Yeah, I don't, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> so AFS, part of their whole thing, like again, talking about this religious ideas, they would offer the buyers of the Jerusalem artichoke seeds a chance not just to make a profit, but also to enroll himself or herself, primarily himself, because... 1980s Midwest, into a, a spiritual family, basically like a kind of church or cult. The idea was that buyer and grower alike were joined together in a project on behalf of self, nation, and God. This is something we keep hearing, that holy trinity of, you know, being a selfish asshole for God and country. And uh, we, don't, we don't see that today at all, fortunately. Now, AFS used other promises to attract growers as well. Its salesmen commonly used the specific promise of an escrow account to make AFS seem as much as an investment as a purchase. We talked a little bit about that before, but to reiterate, they had promised that for every dollar spent on seed, 50 cents would be kept back so the company would have the resources to buy grower seed. For those that don't remember... A really intelligent businessman talked about how they were cash heavy, and he didn't really understand the accounting of it, but how could they not be super profitable if they were cash heavy? And this was why. But integral to this entire uh, pitch for AFS was the notion that growers were at the forefront of an important but risky undertaking. If it worked out, which they basically promised it would, they would receive the generous reward they deserved, not just from the organization, but from God itself, himself, itself, themselves. I don't know. This sale principle is of well-founded risk is often identified in scams, where it's like, give us a little bit of money now and you'll get a lot later, like your typical sketchy email. Yep, found that out the hard way. And those damn Nigerian princes. They knew where to find you, buddy. I just wanted to help. Trying to be a good man. Happens to all of us. I've been used. <laughs> so one common AFS sales line was the train is leaving pitch, which now that I say it, you're probably like, oh, yeah, I've, I know what that is. And it's basically that, you know, if you don't buy now, it's going to skyrocket into the future. Urgency. Urgency. If you don't do it now. So false urgency. False. Uh, the most false urgency. In the spring of 82, the vice president of sales, Jerry Knapper, informed the press, end quote, this thing is going like wildfire, end quote. And he pointed out at, at this time that even though the company had been in business for less than a year, it had already hired 40 full-time sales staff and three to 400 part-time staff. One of the more notable ads had French farmers growing more acres of Jerusalem artichokes than there were acres in France, because, you know, fact-checking before the internet. The reality was that there was only about 20,000 acres of Jerusalem artichokes under cultivation in France at the time. Also important to know is that Jerusalem artichokes like have a place in the diet of French people. It's got a like, cultural value. It's not like they were doing it because they were thinking it was going to blow up. Now, other ads repeatedly suggested that industrial uses of the Jerusalem artichoke for sugar and fuel were imminent. One regional sales representative, for example, 
encouraged his salesmen to take along on sales trips such Jerusalem artichoke products as spaghetti, pellets, jars of alcohol, and fructose. The intended implication was that the jars contained products made from Jerusalem artichokes, which, surprisingly, they did not. Okay, so let me get this straight. They talk about all the different uses of sunchoke and bust out a box of ziti and pretend the pasta noodles were made in a factory using Jerusalem artichoke somehow, even though there was no process for it. That's like if you took my Toyota Camry, pulled off the muffler, and said, hey, everyone, it's an electric car. Don't worry about the noise. It's just because it needs it for whatever. Like, yeah, they, they literally just rebranded other shit. And they're like, no, this is it. This is it. Doesn't it taste exactly the same? You can't even tell. It's amazing, right? It, it sounds insane. And there are laws against that. But I guess they just didn't work back in 19-fucking-80-whatever. I mean, I think the idea was that they didn't expect to be in business that long. I mean, I don't actually know that. But I, I think that would make a lot of sense. Well, I mean, we've been arguing, is this a business or if it's a pyramid scam? And they said it wasn't a pyramid scheme, but with that, it just, it seems like it is. I don't know. I don't know what else, I don't know what else to call it. Yeah, right. Now, according to the Minnesota Attorney General's office and other attorneys general offices, what they were saying was patently false. And they would agree with you that what they were doing was very, very illegal. And it's shocking that the dude whose business plan sounds like Bill O'Reilly talking about the tides was wrong. Right? Can't explain that. Now, AEFS argued that it takes thousands of pounds of seed tubers at a dollar a pound to seed an acre, but each acre yields 45 to 65 tons of tubers. That's a lot, right? That's a shit ton of tubers. That, that's a lot. Now, for context, an acre of corn that is the highest producing crop on the earth produces around two tons of kernels. So, yeah. On this basis, conservative estimates would lead a grower to believe that 10 acres, the average acreage of the growers that were involved, would net nearly half a million dollars a year. Like, I would sign up for that too if I believed it wasn't bullshit. If AEFS attained its goals, which included selling 20 million acres of Jerusalem artichokes in the next five to seven years, the growth and profits were just like astronomical. And holy shit, that's not even close to the reality of what happened. So like, they're just saying, they're just saying stuff. Yeah, no, I mean, it's one of those things you're just like, you are not even like, they, they should have known better is really the point here. Caveat emptor. I mean, what are you going to do? Yeah. And I, I guess like- These fools and their gold got fucking separated, bro. <laughs> yeah. And I like, you know, you know, companies are going to sandbag it a little bit, like their sales pitch, but- I think the number is so astronomical, even at 25% of that figure, they would have been well over corn. And that's like either delusional or like this weird sense of like, yeah, they're overselling it. But even if they're overselling it four times, it's still going to be incredibly profitable. And like just taking that at its, I don't know, it's, it's just complete insanity. Yeah, I, you're right about that, though. Like, even if the people they were pitching assumed 75% of what they said was bullshit, even if they took 25% of the figures they were quoting, it still it looked good enough to give it a shot, right? Yeah, I guess. And we, we talked about in the previous episode the types of people that were buying. So um, I don't want to re recreate that piece of the episode. So go, if you haven't listened, check out episode two. Unfortunately... This gets worse. I know, you're, you're shocked. The nearly 500 artichoke growers who had contracts for the first three years with AFS would produce at a 30 to 1 ratio by 
1984, enough seeds to supply the seed needs of 450,000 additional farmers. Like, think about that that growth rate for a second. This is not only like an insane amount of additional farmers compared to 500 in three years, but it's also more than double the total number of farmers in North and South Dakota and Minnesota combined. If these 450,000 additional farmers grew seed tubers in similar amounts, basically North America would be inundated by seeds. So they choked the world and drew some artichoke seeds in like a decade? Yeah. And I mean, why wouldn't you think that sounds realistic, Elliot? I, I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. <laughs> so despite the obvious issue, the people that heard about it, like, clung and reached and were obsessed with this idea of the Jerusalem artichoke. And throughout 1982, they couldn't stop selling. To take advantage of the uh, wonderful offer that AFS was giving them to get in on this ground level, which allowed farmers to make more than $40,000 per acre, they only needed to accept AFS's standard three-year agreement. The grower the pitch ran would buy seed for 10 acres for $12,000, which was calculated at about 1,000 pounds of seed per acre at the cost of $1.20 a pound. For its part, AFS would become the grower's exclusive marketing agent for the following three years. So not only are you getting this great margin when you sell, but you also don't have to do any marketing. But AEFS would receive a marketing developer fee of 50% of all gross sales of the seed tubers harvested in the fall of 82 and the spring of 83, and a 40% fee on all crops grown for the following two harvests. In addition to promising the development of machinery, key there is development, doesn't exist yet, to harvest the artichokes and furnish custom planting, AEFS promised to make its, in quote, best efforts to market the grower's crop, to develop a program of research on improved strains, and of use of the crop as an alcohol fuel crop, a fructose sugar crop, an edible plant for humans, and a livestock and poultry feed, end quote. Yeah, we call that wraparound services in the money-making biz. Yeah, it sounds pretty tempting until you start thinking about, huh, they want to increase and do improved strains. Usually those are all separate processes for each of those, right? You're, you're selecting for each of those or certain plants where certain things can be coming from the same plant. You might grow it all in the same one. Listen, that's what, that's what makes it the chosen plant, okay? <laughs> yes, that is it. And the marketing is just, there's no marketing. God does the marketing for you. Like he's going to come out of the sky and just like piss sunchokes. Sounds like it hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For who, God or us? I, Both. Everyone? Everyone. So this wasn't the only way that AFS created the illusion of future success. They also used like these quasi-institutional ads to convince the growers that it had significant research already underway to unleash the potential of the crop and to establish its best varieties. Again, it's always about selling the future. It invited its growers to participate in the agronomic study of the crop. AFS further tried to make growers believe they were joining a family. Again, the whole religious thing is fundamental to all of this. They uh, celebrated growers' birthdays and anniversaries and basically anything that they could do. Like, what is it called? Love bombing? Yeah, that's a yeah. call technique. Yeah, it's love bombing. And it's, it's did things like it sponsored contests for the tallest plant and the best school speeches on the artichoke as a future crop. It asked for recipes from growers' wives, because, of course, those were the people in the kitchen. And it involves them in trading Jerusalem artichoke recipes, which they shamelessly labeled 
breaking loose. Is that a fart joke? It sounds like a fart joke. Oh, it absolutely is. A fart joke. They're like, hey, your wives, they're in the kitchen. Have them give us their recipes. And also, we're going to make fart jokes about their recipes. So AFS supplied growers with a chance to win recipe books to obtain free samples of pelletized Jerusalem artichokes, Jerusalem artichoke flour, as well as to purchase Jerusalem artichoke t-shirts, one of which announced Jerusalem artichokes could keep you in farming. In Minnesota, AFS drove a large bus from farm to farm to sell Jerusalem artichokes, and it used an alcohol-fueled car for the same purpose. Okay, so was it ethanol uh, created with Jerusalem artichokes? Oh, Elliot, you know the answer to that. God damn it, I do. And you know who else has the answers? Is it our sponsors? I don't know. We'll have to listen to find out. Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. All right, so we uh, hopefully listen to some really sketchy ads with some fake science and false promises. So they were doing really definitely legal things and definitely the parallels between the uh, background in the the religious industry, as we'll call it, and how they were organizing, very intertwined, right? Not only did they run these buses and do all this internal stuff and had these like quasi, you know, delusional projections of earnings and, you know, research. They even partnered with some independent news organizations to publish like these really sketchy articles like Ford's better idea, alcohol fuel finds home in Brazil. Yeah. So it looks like they partnered with a woman named Waletta Warburg and she was a publicist. Yeah. They got help from a whole bunch of people basically that were just all into, I guess, creating a new religious family to take over. You know, there's nothing suspicious going on here. It's fine. No, not at all. Bigger buyers that were like the the heavy hitters interested in this crop uh, were often flown in to see their research facility and so on. On these flights, the visitors were often deceptively shown the large Marshall corn processing plant, and they would pretend that it belonged to AEFS, the one that's like over on the farm next door. Once on the ground, the visitors were given a tour of AFS's main sales building and its displays, the company headquarters, and so on. They were also shown Dwyer's fields of artichokes at a nearby farm and, on occasion, a local alcohol plant that AFS was negotiating to purchase. At the end of the tour, after giving prospective growers a chance to sign on the dotted line, AEFS provided them with a smorgasbord of fresh artichoke foods before their return home. Now, the thing about this last snack is that it uh, came with a few smiles on the employees' faces. The thing about the Jerusalem artichoke, the fartichoke as we've talked about, 
they wouldn't be cooked all the way when they were fed to them because they do taste pretty good even if they're not fully cooked. But you're going to feel it. So what you're saying is after they paid up and literally signed on the dotted line, they were made to basically fart themselves into like a, a weird inundated fart coma. Yeah, the FOMA. Let's call it that. There you go again. <laughs> I'm not even mad anymore. Yeah, so unsurprisingly, if you've listened to all two and a half episodes at this point, the warnings and the accusations about the crop and the company came pretty quickly. So as early as October of 1981, less than two years into this venture, a University of Minnesota Agricultural Extension Service memorandum to regional agents in southwestern Minnesota cautioned, and I quote, a firm in Lyon County promoting the growing of Jerusalem artichokes as a crop overestimates the yields of the plant as well as the plant's potential for conversion to alcohol fuel and sugar and even human food, end quote. In April of 82, the Extension Service, in another memorandum, cautioned that the much-touted claim that the Jerusalem artichoke got 90% of its nutrition from air, sunshine, and water was true not only for the Jerusalem artichoke, but for all plants. <laughs> so they got outed. Like, they got outed in 1981. Oh, yeah. They- pe- people were still just like, it's a miracle plant. Oh, it's, it's beautiful how it plays out. But yes, by December of 81, the Minnesota Commissioner of Agriculture, Mark Seaton, openly charged that no research in the past 50 years supported their claims about the yield of the Jerusalem artichokes. And he announced his intention to ask the Minnesota Attorney General's office to examine AEFS as being engaged in pyramid sales. There it is. There it is. The Attorney General's office began an inquiry into AFS's business practices in light of possible pyramid schemes, monopolies, and surprisingly, fraud. On December 9th of 81, the Sioux Falls Argus leader banned its state section with the headline, in quote, Jerusalem Artichoke Production Question, end quote. The paper quoted the State Director of Energy Policy, who found the contrast between the $10 an acre cost of seeding corn and the $1,000 an acre cost of seeding Jerusalem artichokes, ironically worthy of AFS's motto, borrowed from Sam Adams, risk is the price you pay for opportunity. So basically, everyone was either making fun of the buyers for being so stupid or making fun of the sellers for being so brazen. I mean, the 80s really was a wild time. It absolutely was. I mean, I think about being in the 80s and like people just smoking in restaurants with little kids, and that was like child's play compared to what they were doing in businesses. I remember buying six packs for my dad. <laughs> oh, boy. Literally just handed me money and just was going to the store. I'm going to stay in the AC car in Texas. <laughs> Shit was wild. Yeah. So a month later, in January of 82, a critical article was published by The Farmer, an influential agricultural paper which labeled the Jerusalem artichoke a highly speculative venture in light of the fact that there was no existing new markets for the crop. He quoted one of the nation's most knowledgeable artichoke advocates, Tom Lukens, who claimed that markets for the crop were several years away, at best, by even the most optimistic estimates. 
He also quoted Jerusalem Artichoke advocate, developer, and speculator Thomas Reichart, who suggested that AEFS might be growing the wrong variety of Jerusalem artichokes. The earlier maturing Colombian variety might prove more appropriate in northern climates, which have shorter growing seasons, duh, than the French mammoth white sold by AEFS. Holy shit. So they're growing the wrong species of artichoke, and they're selling it. And I mean... Does it get better or does it get worse from here? They are the experts and they picked the wrong variety. Yeah. That is just chef's kiss. Fraud. Like Fraudulent. What do you, they had that great research guy, Dr. Dr. Uh, Dr. Water. What the hell did he do? He was a, bio, a marine biologist or something. Yeah. Yeah. He was a marine biologist. Had nothing yeah. to do with plants. He's Dr. Science. It's fine. So it does get better though. Anticipating the investigations into possible monopoly charges against AEFS, the paper pointed out the profound price discrepancies between the dollar and dollar twenty a pound charged by AEFS for Jerusalem artichoke seed tubers and the eighteen to twenty three cents a pound it sold for in many fresh produce markets and the forty to fifty cents a pound being paid for tuber seed stock in Washington State, which was surprise where AFS got its original seed stock from. Damn. So 1981 proved to be the year where they got called the fuck out on all their bullshit. Right. Further, South Security Securities concluded in its review, which had begun in December of 81, with the finding that AFS was selling securities. In March of 82, the state of South Dakota, in an order to cease and desist, prohibited AFS from, in quote, making any future sales or offers of Jerusalem artichoke tubers, end quote, until it properly registered itself with the state. So in all of this in all of this fraud going on, they just happen to forget to register the company with the state. Who needs to be a business when you're a business, Elliot? Didn't they have an attorney they had an attorney in there? The, the, the guy who founded the company was an attorney and his business partner was a business owner that was registered. So you can't even call that like that's not even negligence. Like, that's willful at that point. At, on paper, yes. I think they are, I 100% believe they were too stupid to realize they were supposed to do these things. Frauds. But they should know. They should. <laughs> so, while South Dakota ended up lifting its ban in July of 82, it did require the company to offer its South Dakota growers a chance to rescind their contracts. AEFS agreed to these terms. As was the case in subsequent rescissions in Iowa, Nebraska, and elsewhere, its growers, much to AFS's pride and their cult-like mentality, were not interested in the offer to get out of this deal. Only one South Dakota Jerusalem artichoke grower out of approximately 30 took advantage of this rescission. At the meeting between growers and the representative of the consumer division, meaning the government who's like, hey, you're getting fucked. The majority of growers, according to Dwyer, literally laughed at the consumer division representative. They told the government to get their nose out of farming. Yeah, I really don't think any farmer has listened to a suit out of spite since the beginning of agriculture. The irony, of course, is like that all of these people had been growing crops because they were getting subsidized by the government. And now the government's like, yeah, you're doing this thing. We're happy for you that you're not being subsidized, but it's a scam, right? I know you've been living off of our teat for 40 years, but you realize this is a scam, right? And they're like, they basically are like, what do you know? You don't know how to farm, even though you funded us. My eyes are rolling. We're, we're, we're on an audio media, and my eyes are rolling. 
Can you hear it? I can hear it. Like, I'm not even looking at the screen. My eyeball is so close to the microphone right now. Dude, you have such big eyes when you do that. Why are they so round? Because I have a stigmatism. Did mine do that? I have a stigmatism too. That's literally what a stigmatism is. It's a round eyeball. It should be all in shape. Is it really? Yeah. I thought it was like your eyes were cross-eyed slightly. Nah, your eyes are too close to round and they should be almond shaped. So that's why I need these stupid glasses. Yeah, because you're the- Got these goddamn round eyes. Yep, that's that's it. Fuck. Why didn't anyone tell me that? Learn something new every day. Yeah, buddy. (laughs) So back to our, our good sunchokes. In December of 81, so like while all this other stuff is going on, the Minnesota Attorney General also began an investigation to AFS. The owners of AFS, unsurprisingly, I know this is going to be a giant shock to everyone listening, believe the investigation to be a part of a conspiracy against them. Hendrickson, our boy Fred II, suspected until the day he died that behind the Attorney General's investigation were the world oil cartel and the world's giant grain merchants. Oh, it's just, I think he had a stroke. No, I was looking up his stigmatisms. Um, (laughs) (laughs) The man definitely needed some drugs. And there's probably a few he needed, but at least one, he he definitely could have probably benefited from doing Something to take the edge off. He needed something to take that gigantic fucking edge off. So in response to the demands of the attorney general's office and upon the advice of its attorneys... Fortunately, not our buddy Fred II, AFS rewrote its literature, altered its contracts with buyers and growers, and designed and redesigned its multiple programs with growers. It also abandoned its effort to define itself as a shared enterprise, since to do that would have made the company subject to the laws of regulating securities, and they didn't know how to do that, they didn't want to know how to do that, so they just stopped. It also rewrote its contract to avoid being judged a monopoly. It had to restrict itself to selling seeds to its buyers without seeking to control the future stock sale or price of seed. Additionally, AAFS had to alter its basic sales strategy if it were not to be judged a pyramid sales scheme. It could no longer link the benefits of purchasing a seed contract to future sales of seed, sales of salesmanships, or the sales of distributorships, all of which, as the Attorney General pointed out, are hallmarks of a pyramid scheme or multi-level distributorship. All right, so let me let me paraphrase that. The attorney general reached out and basically said it's obvious that this is a pyramid scheme and then gave them the advice to try to hide it a little bit better because it's just it's too easy to spot. Yeah, so they they jumped through these hoops, did the minimum required, but unsurprisingly, their legal dilemma continued. If it were to satisfy the attorney general's office that it was not a security, it then had to sell tuber seed and tuber seed alone. But if it were to avoid being a pyramid scheme, it had to demonstrate that the Jerusalem artichoke tuber seed had a value. The question of the plant's value was really the one insurmountable problem, right? Where is this value coming from? While hypothetically AEFS could satisfy the law by showing it was not to be a security, a monopoly, and a pyramid, it could not, despite whatever it promised, identify a market for its products. This failure meant that in the end, all AFS had to sell was basically bullshit. AFS could not escape the ultimate day of reckoning with the attorney general and be profitable. And so finally, they're recognized and realized as the criminals they were all along. And it shouldn't surprise you that their solution for this reality was poorly and so, so hilariously conceived. 
But before we get there, you're going to have to tune into the uh, to the next commercial. Are you thirsty? No? Do you want to be? Try bean curd. With twice the chewiness of a sponge and half the flavor of dough. What could be better? Nothing. Take your high-protein block of cardboard and make a great meal incredibly mediocre. Say it with me now. Herd your thirst with curd. Can you smell what the rock is cooking? Because it's bean curd. Learn more about the power of bean curd at poorproles.com. Stay thirsty, friends. Thanks for coming back. I know you're all itching to hear about their solution for the fact their business model had no customers. Unsurprisingly, they threw everything at the wall to see what could stick. For example, they leased a small alcohol plant in Marshall that never succeeded in processing more than like a cup or two of alcohol. Also, the company tried unsuccessfully to turn a failed Marshall food processing plant into a Jerusalem artichoke processing plant. The impure and fibrous Jerusalem artichoke, as one worker noted, defied the processing plant dryers as much as it did the stills of the alcohol plant. Following the fashionable concept of biomass conversion, Hendrickson started an offshoot company, Biomarkets of America, whose purpose was to convert the Jerusalem artichoke into an energy source with, surprise, zero success. Okay, so they're striking out and trying to find or even create markets for the Jerusalem artichoke. Yeah, they thought maybe I'll just spin off a business that can do it. If I can't do it with this gigantic, profitable business, why not start a you know small bootstraps business that can do it for some reason? Now, despite all of this, one thing somehow continued to hold. It was the fiction that on the open market, Jerusalem Artichoke's tuber seed was worth $1.20 a pound. This was the thing that kept the business from going under, that there was some future payoff in the future, right? This fiction of the dollar twenty a pound held up until like the very final hours of the company's existence, when AFS failed in a bid to sell Jerusalem artichoke seed to Archer Daniels Midlands for just five cents a pound. Okay, so they dropped ninety percent of the price trying to make a final sale? Yeah, they were hoping to prove that there was a market for it. And uh, they actually sold it for 96% of a drop in sale. And that was to the only company that they were able to even just take it. Despite that, they couldn't even sell it because they needed that fictional $1.20 a pound. It was the promise of that future sale, that future value that brought the river of money into the company. It was the same thing that secured the value of the company's paper transactions. It was the rational measure for all of the bullshit that they did. Everything was based on this future value. All the advances, all the draws, all that came from this this future seed value. Yeah, everything everything that you just said is the basis for all pyramid and Ponzi schemes. In capitalism, actually. What did I say? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so basically, surprise, they went bankrupt. So basically what they did is they took the valuation of the company's profits or future profits based on this arbitrary figure, and then they could borrow against that for future earnings for like basically whatever they wanted. The same way like Elon Musk did with Tesla stock for buying Twitter. He didn't actually sell anything. He just leveraged the equity that he had in these, these future things that he could sell, right? So that is basically how they built all of the money in their business. Now, in the aftermath of AFS's bankruptcy, Sorry, spoiler alert right there. Our good friend Dwyer publicly explained that 
this wasn't the problem. It wasn't how they organized. The failure of the company was actually, in quote, government interference, bad press, employees, and hyper growth, end quote. That's funny because I think it was the way they organized. I'm just sitting here thinking of a better way to sell Jerusalem artichokes. They had the people who were willing to buy all the seeds and grow all these tubers, right? Why couldn't they just do like church bake sales and get revivals going in like the 1980s and get people to come to white church tents and fucking, there's no tent poles holding it up. It's just farts because everybody's eating artichokes. Yeah, there's like a toilet everyone sits on, or they just shove a tube up their ass, and it all goes to like the same big like gas canister, and that's how they collect the the gas. I mean, that sounds that sounds like a legitimate way to make money. Yeah, it's it's legal. You could register with the state. It's not a Ponzi scheme. Like I don't know. I just thought of a better idea, and I'm just sitting here. (laughs) The Community Ass Gas Foundation. Come on, everyone could be connected to it. Like it's a fucking like I don't know octopus. Like, imagine, like, your community gas octopus. Like, it makes so much sense. See? They just found a natural gas market. There you go. So, I know this is also going to be a shock, but some of the employees that had worked for AFS had very different perspectives on why the company failed. Now, Mark Hughes, an agronomist and um, one of the few folks that actually knew anything about plants, considered the company flawed both in conception and in practice. So, like, there's no good... There's no positives here. And he believed the company officials either knowingly made false claims about markets for the Jerusalem artichokes or, and this is his words, stupendously stupid. The production of alcohol from the Jerusalem artichoke wasn't even feasible from an engineering point of view. Yeah, and that's my favorite takedown is him saying it was flawed in conception and practice. I mean, when I hear that, I just think of so many people I went to high school with. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful thing to be like, you know, when you see somebody about to do something stupid and you're like, oh, that guy's going to get hurt and they get like even hurt worse than you expected because they clearly didn't know what they were doing. And you're like, they don't know what they're like. It was that except like on a massive multi-million dollar scale. That's, that's beautiful. That's literally what I do when I'm feeling down about myself. I go on YouTube and look at people starting fires with gasoline. <laughs> I mean, it's really an art form when you think about it, to do it at this spectacular of a level. Yeah, they did it with the, the middle part of the country. Yeah, like the entire north-central part of the country. They were just like, hmm, I wonder how quickly we can bankrupt a bunch of farmers. Okay, so Pat Derner, Hendrickson's colleague who was expected to help create markets, he was supposed to help figure out how to use this plant. Thing is, he lacked a chemical engineering background and had little to no knowledge about processing. According to Hughes, who wrote a book on this entire saga, no one stopped at any point and said, this is, is this a good or bad idea? They literally had like no sense of foresight. The seed program, for example, was a sham. Like we figured that out. And the, the worst part is that they shouldn't have spread it across the country. There was no disease control and they just didn't know anything about agriculture. They knew they were spreading sclerantina, a plant disease which is found in beans and sunflowers, and they didn't even do anything about this. Okay, so they had actual ecological impacts because they are doing all of this in the mind of businessmen and just aren't even thinking about what they're doing <laughs> to nature. No, they, they're so like uniquely unqualified for this business, they don't even know what they should do know and don't know. Yeah, I can't even call them stupid at this point. They're oblivious. Yeah, so th- there's layers. They're really, like, when you when you start peeling back the onion of Fred II... It's a hollow onion. Oh, it's it's not even hollow. There's, like, layers into it of 
that are mixed. It's like if you could like smash a white and red onion together and like one layer's white, one layer's red, one layer's white, except it's stupid and the other one is like, I don't know, not stupid. Uh, criminal. Criminal. Yeah, that's it. So one layer is stupid and one layer is criminal. And you're like, I'm not sure which one is worse. Maybe it like will level out the further you get in. But instead, they just get like more convoluted. And it's just, yeah, it's it's beautiful. Great analogy. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. I really pulled that one out of my ass. You did. So one thing uh, we haven't talked about is um and this is getting into more of the business side of things but i think really highlights the uniquely unqualified capacity of them for understanding how to run a business despite them being an attorney and a businessman is that um there's specific requirements around things that are called uh, arms length transactions which basically means you can't use business assets for personal stuff and doing business in good faith and fair dealing and that they take due care in managing their affairs. What that means is like you can't use the same bank account for your business as yourself because then it becomes messy about you bought a, a notepad at the store. Was that for your business or for you? There's really no like ability to track that. And good faith and fair dealing is like you can't give yourself a business deal. You can't rent out property to yourself. Well, you can, but that's a little different. You can't give yourself contracts and deduct the expense of the contract so one company has inflated profits and the other one has deflated profits because you don't want to have the profits in the higher tax bracket business, right? So like you're you're not supposed to do those things. There's ways around them, but you're not supposed to. The idea was that that's how they should do things. They didn't, obviously. So part of this doing all these things that you're supposed to do is you don't have bank accounts shared. Uh, you try to prohibit owners and managers from competing with their own corporation, having an interest that conflict with the corporation, right? It also means that like the directors and the officers can't be uh, influenced by uh, things other than the welfare of the company, right? It's not a good thing for a business to have a benefit if the company goes under. It, that's like a fundamentally bad thing, right? Not very fiduciary. No. Now, fiduciary trust in Minnesota law specifically holds directors liable for losses or harm to the corporation as a result of specifically breaking that fiduciary obligation. Okay. So I'm just going to go out on a limb here and, and guess that our boy Dwyer broke every single one of these laws. Yeah. That's, that's basically what happened. Yeah. And you know what, Elliot? What's that? We're going to find out all about that in the next episode. Oh, we're really going to make this a four-parter. Not by choice, came to me in a dream from God. He declared his fartichokes needed another day in the sun. Four-partichokes. Four-partichokes. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And God told me from the sky. Sorry, Dom. <laughs> we might have to cut that out. Nah. When God farts, do you say bless you? I don't understand. I, I think he's blessing you, so you say thank you? I don't know. Amen. Amen. <laughs> oh yeah, this is good. So this is this has been fun. I I'm very excited to come back for part four. Hopefully you guys are too, because we get to see how they try to save themselves from this business collapsing, and it is just. I mean, it is an absolute dumpster fire at this point. They oh man, it was flawed. It was flawed in conception and practice. It started with a dumb idea. It got snowballed into dumb people. Who then became full of themselves because they're like, look at how smart we are. Right. We're ahead of the game, ahead of the curve. It's just, it's beautiful. So it's a, we'll it's see a good you. story. It really is. 
We'll see you guys next week. Or no, we're not doing this in next week. We're doing it every like two days. So we'll see you in like two days. Fuck's that face, Elliot. Us or them? Them. We'll see you in two days, everybody. 